welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast with your hosts Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. The ultimate insider's guide from signing day to the national championship game and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. Thank you very much, Mr. Announcer Man. Yes, this is the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. I'm Chip Patterson. That's Barton Simmons. Barton, I miss you already. I saw you like uh, 24, 36 hours ago, but now we are back at our homes. Uh, I am in Raleigh. You are in Nashville. Barton, how is uh, Safe Travels back, I hope? Uh, yes, man. I, I, I miss your face, Chip. You, know, <laughs> we, you, you feel so far away now as we sit in, in our uh, respective studios, but... Uh, you know what? It's uh, it was good to good to, to catch up in in Fort Lauderdale. Good to game plan the year a little bit, and um, you know it's it's it, it, it's almost that time of year where we got to start getting into specific game previews, and and I don't know how many more camp buzzes we got. It's it's time for game buzz, you know, and so uh, we're we're getting we're getting close. I got to get back in the lab and write a new jingle if we're talking about <laughs> game buzz. Uh, all right, so this is something we're going to reach out to the listeners on, and uh, and Barton and I are go- going to uh, get together as well. But um, you know, because we've got more time for this for this first week, and because the opening week is absolutely loaded, uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing as we count down the day to uh, that first big college football weekend is we are going to be taking some an in-depth look at some of the biggest games. So I've got a list, Barton, of about seven games uh, that seem like no-brainers that we can dedicate a little bit more time to. But um, since we're going to have the long weekend before we link back on Monday, we're recording this Thursday, please hit us up on Twitter if you've got a specific game that you want us to talk about and give a little bit of extra time to. He is at Barton Simmons. I am at Chip underscore Patterson. Barton, I'm sure you're list of like seven looks a little bit like mine but I feel like between the two of us we can come up with like maybe 10 games that we're really excited about that we can dedicate segments to don't you think yeah yeah definitely and I and the the beauty of, of this you know having some time to, to dig into those previews early is we're, we'll be able to get some of these local experts on that can really give us the the deep dive into what's going on uh, in practice, what's going on in game preparation, and sort of what to keep an eye on. So we'll we'll have uh, some some good folks on that that know a lot more than than we do in terms of the the minutia uh, on campus and, and and in practice for some of these big games. Well, speaking of minutia, speaking of what's going on in camp, uh, you ready to buzz it up? Let's buzz it. Players that are making a buzz, camp camp buzz. I like it. Always end. puts a smile on my face, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it always puts a smile on my face. All right, what's uh, buzzing? Yeah, let's buzz it on out to Eugene, Oregon, where the Ducks are trying to field a defense. Mm. They're, they're trying to, you know, Jim Levitt. Jim Levitt. Trying to marry up a defense finally with a, what should always be a pretty explosive offense out there. And they're looking to the freshman class to accomplish that. And two spots where I'm expecting the buzz to continue is at defensive tackle and cornerback. Jordan Scott, uh, big defensive tackle um, who's, who's just a 
a wide-bodied, athletic, nimble, dancing bear type of guy, <laughs> has worked himself into what looks like the starting lineup uh, for the Ducks. And um, you know, actually, they actually have two two freshmen that are um, look like they're going to play meaningful snaps. Um, Austin uh, Falu, I believe is how you say his last name, is the other one. But Jordan Scott seems to be the guy that's going to start. Um, and you know, they're hoping for a little bit of push there, a little bit of physicality up front. And if they get that, then perhaps that will help the back end where they've got another true freshman that I think probably ends up winning a starting job in Thomas Graham, who's one of their highly touted defensive backs coming in. Diamador Lenore is another guy that's a true freshman that's got that, that's fighting to win a job too. But uh, this is what we're seeing uh, early dividends from – Oregon's recruiting class and and I think you're going to see these guys uh, beat out some upperclassmen and and play right away and and be pretty effective so Thomas Graham and Jordan Scott leading the charge there for Oregon's freshman class and they're a top 10 recruiting class in the class of 2018 now too so get ready for Oregon to to uh, uh, for the youth movement uh, to arrive here and Eugene here of this year and next year. Yeah, Willie Taggart t- telling reporters uh, earlier that he has no intention of redshirting anyone. Um, Twenty-two freshmen that came, uh, he wants them. He wants them out there. That's uh, think, that's encouraging. That's it's it's encouraging, but it's it's also a heck of a, a statement, statement <laughs> as to what he, what he thinks of his current roster. Uh, if if he thinks all those guys can contribute, so um, yeah, I think that that's telling. As as uh, as camps unfolded, have you changed or uh, started to slide either up or down from your thoughts on Oregon in terms of looking at them in 2017? I think that we left it during our Pac-12 over-unders, uh, sort of recognizing them as a definitive tier below Washington and Stanford, uh, but not a, a squad that we expect to go 4-8. That's yeah. I'm I'm still there. I don't know how high I I've been, at varying points I've been high on Oregon. I, right now I'm at like a seven and five range with them. I don't I don't necessarily think that this is a a sudden remarkable uh, turnaround where they are all of a sudden like a powerhouse program nationally. I I think this is still going to be some some culture shifting that needs to take place. Uh, but I think as we talked about, you know, they could. This is one of those teams that could maybe have a you know pull off some big upsets. Um, they're dangerous, but but absolutely, this is uh, I, you know when you get a, a head coach talking about playing all of his freshmen again. I, to me, that's a that's a negative more than it's a positive. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, uh, there are some guys that played a lot as freshmen at Texas, but now they are starting uh, to be in a position where we are going to wait for them. So uh, let's go to Horns Two Four Seven and talk some Texas. And now we're going to head out to the phone lines, the yet-to-be-sponsored phone lines. Hit us up if you want to uh, slap your name on that. Uh, it is Jeff Howe of Horns 247. Jeff, a uh, t- lot of excitement at Texas. I got to know that as, as the boots on the ground there for the Longhorns, have you been able to negotiate a way uh, with Tom Herman and his staff so that you can get one of your lockers in that sweet locker room? Um, I, I have seen a locker, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that's as close as, uh, as I'm going to get to it. I don't think they're putting one of those those deals in the press box for me. What's are they everything that they're that they've been made out to be, Jeff? Like are these like the are these like like personal spaceships and just you know they transform you into a, a an all American football player who's walking <laughs> the room or what? 
Uh, Barton, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess it. It's an upgrade from, from what you had at Yale. It's definitely <laughs> an upgrade from, from my high school locker room, which was kind of the, the two pieces of plywood and, and a couple of metal hooks to, to hang your uh, hang your bag. Uh, no, nah, man, these are uh, this is top-line stuff. I mean, it's all stainless steel, and it's loaded with USB ports and power outlets and fans to make sure your stuff doesn't get stinky and you're eliminating staff and MRSA, and it's a uh, – they they look cool, but they're uh, I, I was surprised at how functional they were because when you see this stuff, you never know how it's going to work out. But I, I was pretty pretty surprised at how functional these things are. What is the have the the excitement that comes with the Tom Herman experience? Do you feel like it has uh, faded into something that is uh, the more comfort comfortable or the norm, or even among the fans or in the building? Is this something where that that little bit of juice that certainly Texas's administration, when they decided to invest in him, uh, do you think that it is still riding high and will continue to until this team hits the field? Yeah, Chip, I think so, and, and here's why. I think when you look at when Charlie Strong was hired, uh, you know, whether he was the third, fourth, fifth, sixth choice, whatever, uh, it was a fan base that wasn't really sold on, on Charlie Strong being hired, and it was a fractured athletic department at the time, and, uh, you know, I think as Charlie Strong went on, I, I don't think he leveraged uh, being the new hire as much as he could have early on in terms of asking for facilities upgrades and things of that nature. And even then, I don't, I don't know how much of that he would have gotten because there were a lot of, a lot of people in the donor base that, that weren't happy with the way that hire was conducted. I think now, I think the fact that Mike Perrin, the athletic director, and Greg Finn, this is the president, they had a plan. They knew what they wanted to do. They knew the guy they wanted to target. They went and got Tom Herman, uh, a guy who understands the culture at Texas. He knows what he's getting into. He knows the kind of – he knows who he needs to go see, who he needs to talk to as far as the donor base goes. I, I think this is a fan base that's much more on the same page with this hire than they were with the Charlie Strong hire. And – I, you know, when and now as you look at, he's gone through spring. We're in a fall camp. I just think people are starting to believe that Tom Herman is going to win. And I think for the fan base uh, and even covering the team, I think that's the big difference. I think everybody was hoping Charlie Strong was going to win, and and covering the team, you thought they might have a chance to win. I, I think there's a universal belief now that Tom Herman is going to win big. It's not a matter of if he will; it's a matter of when that's going to happen. Okay. Jeff, so you sort of lead me into my next question here. And I'd like a reset here and just to settle in and figure out what exactly are the expectations for this team this year? Like not your prediction of what they're going to – how they're going to be and and their win-loss record, but what what do fan bases expect out of this team? Do they expect a team that now is with Tom Herman and and his magic touch is ready to – to, uh, is it a Big 12 title or bust? Like, is a okay, you know, be competitive with Oklahoma? Like, what? I, I, I'm fascinated because of the, how many talented name guys there are on this roster. Now you got a big name coach that everyone's optimistic about. Like, what exactly is going to be a disappointment this year uh, if they don't if they don't meet you know what whatever number you have in mind? Yeah, Barton, that's interesting because you, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth. But when you look at this roster. Now, if you just looked at Texas the last two years and saw a team that was five and seven uh, the last two years, a team that lost to Kansas last year, a team that was you know mentally frazzled that had a lot of growing up to do in that area, um, you'd say you know maybe if, if they can get to seven and five and prove just by two games in a regular season that that would be a good year. But you throw in the fact that it's Tom Herman, 
Uh, one of the things that I've been blown away with uh, the practices I've been out to is how detail-oriented he is, especially when it comes to special teams. And I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but anybody that watched Texas the last few years saw just how disorganized Texas special teams were uh, and how that clearly wasn't a point of emphasis under Charlie Strong. I think just the fact that Texas cares about special teams and Tom Herman's invested in it, and I think that right there, that area in and of itself will show how much better of a coach team Texas is. I think that gets you a game or two alone. So I think the expectations, I don't think this fan base is expecting a Big 12 title or bust. I don't think if Texas fails to make the college football playoff that you're going to have a lot of people that follow this team be disappointed. Um, I do think this is a fan base that expects this team to compete week in and week out. So if you had to put a number on it, I would think if this team is 8-4 and four or 9-3 and three at the end of the regular season, I think people would feel like this thing is going in the right direction. And for that to happen, I don't know if we'll get into the schedule, but I think you look at there's four games early in the season, you know, at USC, Kansas State at home, the Oklahoma game in Dallas, and then Oklahoma State at home. If this is going to be a team that wins eight or nine games, I think Texas has to, at the very least, split those four games, which I think is very doable. Maybe they have to go win three of the four, which I think is really tough. And obviously you're talking about something completely unforeseen if they win all four of those games. But um, I think you're having to look at Texas do something like that. But, no, I don't think this this fan base will be upset if Texas fails to win the Big 12 title. I think if Texas is eight and four – or nine and three going into a bowl game, I think this fan base would think that this thing's on the right track. Well, I think Jeff too. Like one of the things I'm fascinated about with this Texas team is the rest of the Big Twelve, and, and I and I want to get into some of the the position battles and and personnel specifics on this Texas squad. But before we do, just to follow up on on those expectations, well, I think probably sounds about right in terms of what the fan base is hoping for. But what like to me the rest of the Big Twelve is is pretty good this year. Like it's pretty improved. And you look at Texas's schedule, and it's it's a there's some tough games across the board there. Um, where are you at with sort of what their competition is going to look like? Like, do you see this Big Twelve being a, a tougher road to to hoe maybe than than it was last year? Like, it, uh, are are you on the same page there? And and do you think that this is a uh, a, a schedule that's pretty manageable for them? Yeah, for sure, Barton. I don't, I don't know if this is a league that's going to produce anybody in the playoff. I think in, in that sense, it's Oklahoma and Oklahoma State and then everybody else. Um, but I think top to bottom, you know, this is a league that's going to be as good as it's been in a while. Um, you know, you, you, I just mentioned Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. You know, Kansas State's a team, a, a team and a program that when, when the word out of Manhattan is that they don't think they're going to be very good, they're usually decent. And, and when the word is that they think they've got something, they're usually really good. And this is a year that Bill Snyder's kind of pointed to when they felt like the pieces would be in place and their talent would be at a point where maybe they could go compete for a Big 12 title. You know, you've got Texas back on the rise. I, I think West Virginia is going to be a really good football team with Will Greer yeah. going in to play quarterback for Dana Holgerson. I think Holgerson's a heck of a football coach. And then even you look at the bottom end of the conference with, I think, Matt Campbell's a heck of a coach at Iowa State. I think they're going to be more competitive. And, you know, Texas fans saw it firsthand last year with Kansas and David Beatty, teams that go to Lawrence. I think Kansas, this is going to sound weird, I think Kansas has the most underrated home field advantage in the Big 12 because typically it's an 11 a.m. game. You're not excited to play. The atmosphere isn't great. The lack of atmosphere is daunting. 
<laughs> exactly. It's a really big benefit for Kansas, and you've seen them compete. You know, they beat Texas last year at home. They they gave TCU all they could handle. So Kansas typically plays teams better at home, and, and I think David Beatty's got that thing. I'm Not to say Kansas is going to be in bowl contention, but he's got that thing at a much better level than it was when it got there. But the point is, I think top to bottom, this league is going to be as good as it's been in a while. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, you look at the Texas schedule, games like a, a Thursday night game at Iowa State, uh, a road game against West Virginia in November when well, what is the depth going to look like after you've played a, a full schedule in the in, in October, November without a bye? I think Texas has seven straight weeks in there without a bye. So what is your depth going to look like? Those are the kinds of games on the schedule. And then I didn't even mention TCU, um, a team that I think has beat Texas by a combined score. I think I got this right of like 193 to 17 or something like that. Um, over the last three games. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be a really, really tough schedule for Texas to navigate. Jeff, do you think that this is a, a roster right now? Certainly at the top level, there's there's some, some very good, some good talent, some highly recruited prospects, uh, some players that um, haven't, have certainly underwhelmed to expectations in the last two seasons. But, like, is this roster... Uh, to a Big 12 championship level depth. Like, I kind of think, I look at Texas, for example, uh, notably the running back position. Chris Warren cleared for contact earlier this week, uh, but concussion certainly an issue. And I look behind him, and you've got Kyle Porter. But then to me, you know, the, the uninformed uh mr national bro like i i've got a whole lot of question marks and there seem to be some spots on texas's roster where uh the a wrong injury at the wrong place could be particularly devastating or do you have some confidence in some of those younger guys some of those players that are unknown to this point in their ability to step up if they are called on to do so later in the season you know, let's break it down to, to a few levels, Chip. I think first is Texas depth across the board at a Big 12 championship level. In my opinion, no. I think there's a few spots where they're they're an injury or two away from being in a world of hurt. Uh, you look at the running back situation specifically, and even though he was cleared for contact coming off of a concussion last week, and as you said, I think this staff is at a point where I don't think I don't think they can depend on Chris Warren to be there. Look, he's he's 254 pounds. He's a freak athlete. When he's been on the field, he's been extremely productive over his last six games. He's averaging 125 yards a game. The problem there is you've got to go back to his true freshman year to find the last time that to, to find the last time where he's played a total of six games. Um, he missed a lot of time his true freshman year. He missed eight full games last year. So, yeah, from that standpoint, your running back depth hurts. But I, I do think, though, and I don't know if Barton would agree with this or not, I think running back is typically one of those positions, it's unlike quarterback or offensive line or defensive line, where if a guy is going to be a player, you can usually tell it pretty early in his career. And I think from that standpoint, I think the staff's really excited about Daniel Young, a true freshman out of spring Westfield, 220 pounds, ran a sub-1100 meters as a senior, uh, Tamil Carter was a kid who was in for spring, former Georgia commit, and, and would be at Georgia right now had had Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb not decided that, had they decided to uh, to go to the NFL instead of returning to school. But you look across the board, um, I think there's a few positions where Texas feels good about their depth. Um, I think wide receiver might probably is probably the deepest position on their roster. I think safety is really deep. I think uh, linebacker, even though that position frustrates Tom Herman and Todd Orlando to an extent. I think they're really deep at linebacker, but you know they can't sustain any more injuries on the offensive line. They've already lost Elijah Rodriguez, who had kind of won that starting right tackle job that was the one vacant spot in their line 
uh, lost him maybe for the year after him having to have ankle surgery uh, last week. And then cornerback depth, they're really hurting for cornerback depth. If they were to lose uh, Chris Boyd or Holton Hill, one of their starting corners, uh, you're looking at having to go with a true freshman and Josh Thompson or guys that I don't think the staff really feels comfortable putting in a game beyond what they've got in terms of depth with Devontae Davis. So, And then a defensive line, you're still – You've got a couple of pieces that you could put in the game, but I don't think there's anybody behind uh, Puna Ford or Chris Nelson at the two big spots on their line that they could feel like could go in and give them 35 to 40 plays or something were to happen to either one of those guys. So um, Texas does have some talent, some talented depth in some pockets, but I think across the board, uh, I don't think it's at a level yet to where it's at a Big 12 championship level. Jeff, can we put the quarterback battle to rest? I know that they've been acting like it's a competition, but this is Shane Buchel's job, right? Yeah, Barton, there's there's no question about that. I I think that, you know, you, you hear the talk about Sam Ellinger and, and Tom Herman's very complimentary of Sam Ellinger, and I think that does two things. Number one, it keeps Sam Ellinger engaged, and it gets him prepared to, I think, once next week gets here and they really start the nitty-gritty of preparing for that opener against Maryland, I think they're going to have a run game package for Sam Ellinger because this is an offense where the quarterback is going to run the football. If you look at through Tom Herman's time as an FBS coordinator or head coach, whether he's been at Rice, Iowa State, Ohio State, and Houston, uh, whoever his leading rusher as a quarterback is has not had fewer than 104 carries in a single season. So the quarterback is going to run the ball in his offense. At the same time, Shane Bouchel is not a guy that you want to snap it to him 20 times and say, hey, go follow that pulling guard and let's go run some power. Um, it wouldn't be very smart to do that. But I think Sam Ellinger at 235 pounds is the kind of guy that you can open up your quarterback run game and have a number of different things that you feel comfortable doing. The second thing it does is, you know, the numbers tell you that to get through a Big 12 season, especially with as much RPO stuff you're doing, and you can only, you know, keep Shane Bouchelle from being vulnerable to an extent, the, the numbers and the reality tells you you're probably going to need two quality quarterbacks to get through a season if you're going to compete week in and week out. And I think this, again, keeps Sam Ellinger engaged, gets him some work with the ones, prepares him for if he's got to go and be the guy because he is the backup quarterback. And I think from a perception standpoint, and I'm not saying this is the reason Tom Herman's doing it, but I think if he were to have to go to Sam Ellinger in a given week, it's much more uh, – it puts your fan base and more importantly it puts your players at ease when you say, hey – this is a guy who was the MVP of one of our fall scrimmages. He's a guy who made great strides during camp. We feel like we're ready to go play and play good football behind Sam Ellinger. So uh, I think you're getting him ready. You're bringing him along. But there's no question um, that Shane Bouchelle is going to be the starter when Texas takes the field September 2nd against Maryland. All right. So we're, we've got a national audience, and I think the national perception – of Malik Jefferson is, okay, you see him on the mock drafts in the first round. He was a five-star commit. Uh, You know, anybody that's sort of watched Texas in passing has seen 46 flash and and make big plays and run down wide receivers or what have you. But every time I go over to your board, Jeff, like there's there's there's, there's like this sort of like – understated like wink and nods that maybe Malik Jefferson isn't living up to uh to the expectations and you kind of even alluded to it when you're going going through talking the, about the, the linebackers the yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 Todd Orlando is not happy with the linebackers that's some of that I, Jefferson angst 
what's going on, Jeff? Like, break it, like, get, like, educate us on, on what's <laughs> happening behind the scenes right now with the great Malik Jefferson and the linebacking group. Yeah, Barton, from a, from a fan perspective, um, I don't think I'm out of line when I say this. If you talk to Texas fans, I think he's, for <clears throat> for a number of reasons, he's become the most polarizing player in the program, I think. I think there's a portion of the fan base that feels like, hey, in this defense, Todd Orlando's got him in the right spot, and he's just going to be great and, and take off and, and be the guy that, you know, that we thought he would be the second coming of Derek Johnson. I think this is all, there's also a section of the fan base that says, yeah, that sounds great, but what has he really done through his first two years to show you that he's even capable of being that guy? So from a fan perspective, it's really interesting to analyze anytime Malik Jefferson gets brought up in a conversation. Uh, my, my opinion is this. I think when you, if you strip away the name and the number and you look at his production as a sophomore, he had 62 tackles, eight and a half tackles for loss, uh, five and a half sacks, I think you would say, hey, uh, that's, that's a pretty good year. But then you, you throw on the name and the number, and you're like, oh, that's Malik's numbers? Yeah, that, that, he, he could have done He probably could have done a little bit better. <laughs> right. Um, so, I, so I think from that standpoint, I think the production was there. I, the issue, my issue with Malik Jefferson last year was the consistency was not there. The week-to-week, is this guy getting better? Is he constantly showing up on film? Uh, you know, he had a great game in the opener against Notre Dame, and honestly, you really didn't see him again until the Baylor game, which I think was game eight, and that was after he got benched against Kansas State and had to come off the bench against Baylor. So I think there were definitely some growing pains he went through last year. I think now, I think the biggest thing Tom Herman's done to help him is, you know, under Charlie Strong, Malik Jefferson was the face of the franchise, and this is a guy that when he signed his scholarship papers in December of 2014, Charlie Strong came out and and said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that him getting Malik Jefferson was just as big as when he was at Florida with Urban Meyer and they signed Tim Tebow. So right off the bat, um, you're setting the bar pretty high for what people should expect from the guy. Uh, that said, you know Tom Herman has really pulled him back from that, letting him know, hey, you don't have to be the, the face of the franchise. You just go out and be the best Malik Jefferson you could be. I think playing the rover position in Todd Orlando's defense is going to showcase a little bit more of his skill set. You know, the previous staff – had him playing middle linebacker, which he's not a guy that you want consistently having to take on 300-pound guards in a hole. That's just not his skill set. Um, I think in this position, and you look at the numbers that Steven Taylor produced at Houston playing the same spot the last two years, I believe it was 30-and-a-half tackles for loss, 18-and-a-half sacks the last two seasons. So, you know, you put Malik Jefferson in this role where he can be showcased as a pass rusher. He can be a guy who makes plays in space doesn't have to constantly take on 300-pound guards. I think from that standpoint, you'll see him have better production. The consistency is going to come is can he be physical at the point of attack because at the end of the day, you're still going to have to get off blocks. You're still going to have to play the game with a physical edge. And I think this staff, Barton, I think they would tell you that maybe what they saw on film, they didn't see him doing a lot of that last year in terms of being physical. Uh, the few times we've gotten to go out to practice this fall, I do notice a Malik Jefferson that, that his weight is more proportionate. They really worked on leg strength and hip explosiveness with him in the offseason. Uh, I see a guy who is willing to be more physical, who does look more explosive when he's going to strike the ball carrier. So I think the tools are there for him to have a really good year. But Todd Orlando has a really, really high standard for his linebacker crew. And, you know, I heard him speak at a coaching clinic this summer and he said, you know, I've never had a good defense where I had mediocre or bad linebackers. 
so as this defense goes, as this linebacker room goes, this defense of Texas is going to go. So, and they know for this defense to improve, for it to be better, for it to be good enough for Texas to compete week in and week out and have a chance to compete for a Big 12 title, they've got to get more consistent, more physical play from their linebackers. And, and I think that the consistency and the physicality above all else is what they're looking for from Malik Jefferson. Malik Jefferson has never spent a day of his college career below the radar. He, he, has, uh, he has absolutely been someone we've talked about. So, Jeff, my question is, who is a player that you can sense either from talking to coaches, your time at camp, your time around the team? Well, give me a name that we – aren't talking about now that you think given uh some some good play some production a step forward come game time uh, a player that you think we will be talking about come late october november as a real key part of texas's success yeah, Chip, i'll give you one on offense and one on defense the one on offense texas fans know him but i think that the country is going to find out about him pretty quick and that's colin johnson a wide receiver you know he was a guy that I think would have been ranked higher had he been able to get into an all-star game as a senior, but he got hurt early in his senior year and, and just kind of was, was on the shelf for, for that fall and then enrolled at Texas uh, for the spring. You know, he was a guy that when he was on the field last year, as they actually got him on the field and started getting him targets, uh, he ended up being really productive. I think in this offense, playing the X receiver, which you'll see him play into the boundary, he's going to be a guy that is counted on to win one-on-one -on -one battles, to be a physical presence on the field. Um, I think you'll see Colin Johnson, you know, 6'6", 215 pounds, really start to take off and have a nice year. You know, it, it's interesting when you look at playing wide receiver for Tom Herman, who was a Division three wide receiver when he played college ball. He demands a great deal of physicality from his receivers. And if you go back and watch the, the Houston-Oklahoma game and hear some of the stuff that was coming out after that, uh, you know, Tom Herman, I think maybe above anything else in that game, was most proud of the way his receivers were really physical with the Oklahoma defensive backs on the perimeter blocking in the run game and in the screen game. So if you're going to play wide receiver at Texas, you're going to have to play with a physical edge to you. And they've really challenged Colin Johnson in this camp to be a more physical wide receiver, to really harness that 6'6 frame and his size and what he brings to the table. And he's answered the challenge. I think he's primed for a big year. The guy on defense is Deshaun Elliott at safety. And, you know, the previous Texas staff always talked about, hey, we need to upgrade a playmaking ability and athleticism and speed and safety. And, and we never really saw them do that by giving a guy like Deshaun Elliott just give him more at-bats and see what he can do. And last year, towards the end of the year, when he started to play more, he started to flash and make plays, and you saw the Texas secondary really kind of take a step forward. Um, he got hurt against TCU, but he had a great spring. He's had a great summer. He might be he might be having the best camp right now out of anybody on the roster. And you talk about a safety at, you know, six foot one, 210 pounds, who could run, who will strike you, and who has ball skills – um, I think he's really the kind of what the big what a safety needs to be in the Big 12 as a guy who can do multiple things. And I think when Texas fans look on the field and see Brandon Jones, who is the number one safety in the 24/7 Sports Composite rankings of the 2016 class, you see Brandon Jones and Deshaun Elliott at safety. It's going to be night and day from what Texas has been running out there the last couple of years of safety, just in terms of, of, of the raw athleticism and the playmaking ability. But Sean Elliott, um, you know, PJ Locke is probably the leader of that secondary as the nickelback. But I think Deshaun Elliott just as a, a playmaking safety who can create turnovers and get the ball back for the offense, which is the name of the game in the Big 12 defensively. Uh, I think he's the guy that the country is going to figure out about pretty quick. Nice. Dude, Colin Johnson, that's the name Barton's been talking about like all morning. <laughs> well, yeah, he's uh, – 
you know, Colin Johnson, like you said, Jeff, like I, I, he, he was injured a lot of his, I think part of his junior year too. And then he was injured all of his, his senior year and we never really got to see him much, but he was just this like enormous human being that could catch. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, he's, he is, uh, given the opportunity, man, he's definitely got the physical traits. Yeah, again, you know, you talk about a guy 6'6", 215 that just has an insane catch radius when you watch some of the things he's able to do on on the field. You know, you know Tom Herman talked about they had a recent uh, live period of practice where, you know, Todd Orlando has this theory that, you know, I think it's 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 90 it's 95% of playing defense is about, you know, alignment and, and matchups and, and things like that. And the other 5% is just, hey, a guy goes and makes a great play. And, you know, Colin Johnson went up and made a great play, and Tom Herman said he looks at Todd Orlando, and he said, T.O., I think that fits into your 5%. Yeah. And he said, Todd Orlando, he said Todd Orlando shot him a look back and said, shoot, if that guy's going to do that, that's more like 10 to 12% that that guy's eating up. So, yeah, the, t- the Texas staff thinks they've got something really special with Colin Johnson. Las Vegas set Texas's win total uh, on last check, like around 7.5. It was juiced to the over, so that number might be 8. Uh, given the confidence uh, that generally we've been sharing over the last uh, half hour or so, I'm, I'm going to give you 8. So with an over-under win total of 8, Jeff, what are you taking for the Texas Longhorns in the 2017 regular season? Oh, gosh. You had to put me on the spot with that one. I, I'm right at eight. I'm, I'm right at we'll eight. Take, hey, we'll take push. Eight. We'll take push. Where, how do you think it yeah. breaks down? Yeah, I'm, I'm right at eight and four. You know, I, I think if you go through the schedule, um, you know, I, I think this is a team that starts 2-0. and oh. I think they go out to USC and compete really well, uh, but but come up just short. Uh, I think they come back and and, and beat you know they've again games Whoa, like that Thursday like that Thursday game night game against Iowa State. Yeah, no, that does not make me feel good about trying to predict a win loss record. But you know, I think again <clears throat> the the success Texas is going to have this year. I think it boils down to that three game stretch that I talked about: Kansas State at home, the Oklahoma game in Dallas. And then the Oklahoma State came at home. I actually think Texas goes two and one during that stretch. I think they beat K State at home. I think they lose to Oklahoma and Dallas. And then I think kind of the the marquee game Tom Herman can hang his hat on for you know to to end the recruiting cycle on and the success this team's going to have. I think Texas beats Oklahoma State at home. I think that's their one upset. Um, so they're they're a two loss team at that point. I, I think the other two losses. Until Texas actually shows up, or, or, until Texas shows up and, and proves they're a better team than TCU, or at least can be a better team on a given day when they play TCU, or depending on how the season stage shakes out, if Texas is clearly a better football team, unless one of those two things happens, I can't pick Texas to beat TCU, not with the way that series has gone lately. And then I think the other game that gets Texas, because you look at how the schedule sets up for Texas, it's a really long grind through the Big 12. I think game 11 on the road in November in Morgantown against West Virginia, I just that's one that I don't feel good about. I wonder what Texas depth would look like at that point. I think that one gets Texas, but I think Texas comes back at home, the regular season finale, they get their eighth win against Texas Tech. They go to a bowl game, and I think Texas is 9-4 and four going into the January recruiting period, and then Tom Herman can finish off what should be a really good 2018 recruiting class he can finish it off strong by maybe getting him a couple of really elite pieces late in the process. 
He is Jeff Howe. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Howe 247. Horns 247 is where you get all of these insights and tidbits on a daily basis. Jeff, you're the man. You will absolutely be back on this show. Thank you so much for your time here on this Thursday morning. Thanks for having me, guys. Barton, you and I are very lucky because oftentimes uh, schools are nice enough to uh, to let us come and enjoy the games from the press box. But man, I'm I'm still all about my concert tickets. You know, I'm I'm still all about trying to get some Carolina Panthers tickets and and buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated. But guess what? There's a better and simpler way with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest and easiest way to find tickets to live events. They've got a seamless mobile experience where you can buy and sell tickets with just two taps. Two taps! SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Best of all, all of these 24-7 sports College football podcast listeners will get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code SEC today. That's promo code SEC for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. So if you want to hop on SeatGeek and you're trying to find some Texas-Maryland tickets for opening weekend, type in that SEC code and get $20 off. Again, Download the app, promo code SEC, $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, man. That's how that's how we get it done. Right, Barton? SeatGeek, brother. <laughs> uh, all right. CBS Sports preseason All-America team is out. It's up on CBSSports.com. You can find it on CBS Sports Digital, on your mobile app, all those different places. I uh, want to hit on just a few just general talking points, the first of which being... How do you feel about Sam Darnold getting the nod over Lamar Jackson for the first team? I mean, I picked, I, I, I voted Sam Darnold on my ballot, but I also don't. I think it's a little bit of a slap in the face of Lamar Jackson, and I think the fact that we're not even talking about Baker Mayfield is a little bit of a, mm. uh, a little bit of a slight for him as well. But this is a projection team. This is not a what have you done team. And I think the trajectory on Sam Darnold is pretty steep right now. Coming off that Rose Bowl last year, USC is a national title contender. Uh, so I went ahead and went that went went, went with Sam Darnold. And and uh, you know if, if I had to put money on it, I think that I would pre- predict Sam Darnold being the number one pick in the NFL draft. So yeah, I I, I don't feel I, I don't feel like I've been wholly unfair to Lamar Jackson. Um, I think it's a pretty I think it's a pretty fair fight. I think where you at with it. Yeah, I think last impressions are lasting. And I think that uh the the last thing that we remember from Lamar Jackson, he was running for his life against Ed Oliver in Houston, against Kentucky, against LSU in the bowl game. Um and the last thing that we remember from Sam Darnold is him lighting the world up and winning the Rose Bowl. And that when you ask us to fill out these ballots in the off season like the guess what Lamar Jackson absolutely uh, just picking Florida State apart 
happened a long time ago. Like that thing, like that game and that result and some of those, like the Syracuse game, some of the the places where Lamar Jackson had just like video game numbers and video game style performances looking like, uh, looking like a, like a Michael Vick out there, just absolutely driving defenders and defensive coordinators crazy. The moments that won Lamar Jackson, the Heisman trophy were just when Sam Darnold was like maybe barely in his first start. Um, So I, I get why this is how it ended up, but I'm kind of fate. I'm I'm in a I'm in a wait and show me attitude with most of these quarterbacks, and that includes Baker Mayfield in that conversation. <laughs> that includes Mason Rudolph. Like I, I just think that there's a there's a really good crop. Trace McSorley, I would add to this conversation. There, Jalen Hurts. Like there's a, there's a crop of quarterbacks that I think any one of them could emerge as as the premier quarterback in 2017 but as we were talking when we were uh in Fort Lauderdale like like there's there's reason for us to maybe slow our roll at the college level like NFL draft and pro scouts like look you're you you've got a little bit of a different job uh than necessarily evaluating grading rating and assessing college production I I I have started to take a step back from being too bullish on any one of these quarterbacks, and I find the difference between them until we see them hit the field might be a little bit less than I would have thought like a month ago. Well, a big reason why I think that Sam Darnold is a safe pick to to be your All-American is because of supporting cast. Baker Mayfield loses a lot of his supporting cast from last year uh, with the running backs and D.D. Westbrook gone. Lamar Jackson, you know, he loses a couple receivers. He's got an offensive line that was continued to fall apart and is going to be fairly young this year. Probably, you know, maybe two true freshmen starting this fall. Um, and so I, I just think some of those other guys you mentioned too, like they, Mason Rudolph's probably the exception. His supporting cast is is on point, and they're going to put up some big numbers. But that's I think why you feel comfortable projecting sam darnold whether it's heisman whether it's all-american whether it's anything is because i think usc at the very least is going to be whether they're winning a national title they're going to be really good and they're going to be and they've got running backs to help them out they got an offensive line that's got some experience and they've got young receivers that are uh, are ready to, to, to blow it up so that was my sort of my my thought process in going with sam darnold did you ha- i think though the running back position on the all-america team was probably the least the, the least controversial. Like, so? I, if anyone didn't have Saquon Barkley and Darius Geis, I need I need an explanation. Got you. I need to see your receipts, bro. <laughs> right. I need I need, right. to, I need to see them. Uh, yeah, Saquon Barkley and Darius Geis. Those were the uh, they, they were not unanimous though. The I only know, I saw that Barkley was right, but not Geis. Nah, man. The only unanimous was James Washington, Oklahoma State wide receiver. Yeah, which is which is fair. I think this receiver's class nationally is is a little bit tough to pin down. Like I had in my ballot we were supposed to give four receivers. I had James Washington number 1, Cortland Sutton at a SMU number 2. Then I had Christian Kirk, which is was a little bit of a a projection because I just think he's got to have a huge year for Texas A&M have a shot. And then my fourth one was Richie James out of MTSU. He's guaranteeing uh like what 200 catches who uh, richie james no christian kirk he's got he's he? yeah he's got a he's got a number 
that he's putting out there. He's, he's, I hadn't seen that. Yeah. He needs 200 catches. <laughs> yeah. if, if he doesn't get his, his, his 200 catches, then they're in trouble. I'm telling you, man, he's got to have a Heisman Trophy caliber year for A&M to, to have a big year, in my opinion. I didn't struggle necessarily, but I will say that this is a year where going in, I'm, I, th- I think that the, the offensive line is a position where there's a lot – there's not – there, there's not a whole lot of names. And offensive line, you know, the big uglies don't get a lot of love, uh, especially with fans. Like, it's hard enough for offensive linemen to separate themselves in the eyes of fans, and it's especially hard at, at the college level where you're going to have a lot of rotation, where sometimes you're going to play for a while, you're going to switch positions. Uh, you know, you, you're only there for three or four years or maybe even on the field for less. Like, do you think that the the state of the offensive line right now in college football for the 2017 season, are you overly impressed with how that position's locked and loaded looking at the All-America first and second teams? I mean, I think there's a couple of no-brainer guys. I think, you know, Connor Williams at Texas is, is a, a no-doubter. Quentin Nelson at Notre Dame, to me, is a no-doubt guy. Mike McGlinchey as well at Notre Dame. Uh, and then, you know, I threw Braden Smith on mine too out, out of uh, Auburn, who I just have, have loved since he was in high school. Just, I'm just, I love the way he plays, love how tough and physical he is, how strong he is at the point of attack. But, uh, you know, I guess to your point, yeah, beyond that, um, like, I don't even know. I don't know. Brown gets a lot of hype, but I don't even know. He's huge, and it's, he's in an offense that's O line friendly, but I don't know if you put him in you know, uh, Michigan's offense that he's necessarily the same guy. Um, so yeah, I think you have to, you have to, if to, to really get this, the, any year a lot figured out, you gotta, you gotta ask around, you gotta talk to people that really watch and study offensive line. And, um, you know, and it's cause otherwise, I mean, who, who of us are really breaking down in zone copy of, of film and, and like, you know, counting pancakes and that kind of stuff. It, it's it's a uh, it's a tricky job picking the O line. I mean, Martez Ivy's not an All American. No, I agree. Like that was so, I, you, so I, you so you didn't have Martez Ivy on yours. Nah, and I didn't have Billy All Price right. either. I was like, mm, I don't I don't know about that. Like, I think that there's uh, there's there's sometimes there's sometimes spots where you get uh you get you know you you're playing like I I remember. A few years back, somebody who used to work at CBS was telling me that they uh, they they like use team rushing stats, which is like, yeah, I I guess, but <laughs> I kind of think that I need to rely on scouts and coach assistant coaches and like right. people that are going to tell me what that individual impact is because I can't just say that because you're the anchor of an offensive line that's able to get a good push. Like you deserve some credit for that, but if we're honoring the All Americans, it's 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 a tough uh, it's a, it's a tough job, and I, I think that we end up seeing the results kind of go all over the place. Where uh, you know, if you're highly recruited, and if the offensive line does a pretty good job, then you can just kind of kind of coast by and start collecting some accolades along the way. SIDs need to work their tail off for their offensive linemen. Like they need to be tweeting out, uh, you know. Their post game grades. They need to be like letting us know when someone's got like a, you know, a twelve pancake afternoon. Like they, <laughs> that's the 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 because ultimately, like you mentioned, like if it's not if if someone's not educating us on the offensive line, no one has time to break down the tape 
or the access to break down the tape. So what do people end up going off of? Just the names they know. Just yeah. like the guys that are highly re- recruited or the guys that are on the you know the best teams in the country. Because uh, it, it's it's um, you know so that's why like I enjoy talking to like um, you know I I, I, I like Cole Kublick's feed who or, you know who watches a lot of film. Aaron Taylor, who's who's you know he's got really his own he's got his line. own award now for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I enjoyed talking to him recently about it, and, and th- so those those are the type of guys that I like to just because they're actually putting in the the, the man hours on it, and someone's got to do that. All right, the award winning closing segment question of the day. The question of the day for this Thursday, the final show of the week. This is specifically one that uh, I've been excited to pick your brain about because. Um, it is obviously as the national director of recruiting and a, a senior writer at CBS sports and someone who's, who's had their hand in this for, for a long, long time. Uh, this will be the first year and it won't be until, uh, later this year after the season, but this will be the first year of the early signing period. So Barton two part question. Are you in favor or against the early signing period? And Beyond that, uh, what what's the impact here? Like, what are the pros and cons? How do you think that this is going to play out specifically uh, in the short term for the 2018 cycle? It's a it's a it's a really interesting question. I I lean towards yes, I am in favor of it um, because I do think those rare occasions where a kid gets dropped in mid January. Uh, because of a new coach, because of a, you know, because of an injury, because of any any number of reasons, and it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. You know, every year there's one or two guys that this happens to, and I think that this early signing period safeguards against that because these guys can can lock up their spot early. If they're not a take, they find that out early, at least earlier. And then they've got a full month and a half to, to find another home as opposed to uh, a week or two weeks. And so I think that that is, is, is a benefit. I think the negative is that now the kid that would have otherwise been, you know, had the leverage to hold out, you know, and he's got his, his, his you know, his UMass offer or his Boston College offer or his uh, Wake Forest offer, but Ohio State sniffing around and or, you know, uh, Florida State really liked him in camp, but they're waiting to see what happens. Like that guy no longer has the leverage to, to wait it out and see if he can get the better opportunity. That guy's hand is going to be forced to sign with the school who's was maybe a tier below where his his, you know, his ceiling might be. So um, there's going to be a lot of pressure on those guys. Uh, and, and I think that that is, you know, not always a good thing. And, and so I think that there's, there's, this isn't a win-win situation necessarily. Um, so, you know, I think bottom line is it's, I'm okay with it. I don't think it's going to make it, I don't think it's going to drastically shift the landscape of college football recruiting. Um, ultimately the solution to any recruiting issues is let kids sign an LOI the second they get an offer, and that offer can come when they're freshmen in high school, eighth graders, juniors, what have you, let them, 
you know, an offer means you're offered an LOI and you can sign it as soon as you get it. And uh, with way maybe a clause to get out of it if there's a head coaching change. Because then all of a sudden, offers mean something, commitments mean something, the the process slows down a little bit. That's the only way to really to, to solve this whole issue. Uh, but uh, but no, that's my, my long answer there in terms of like I, I you know I'm a I'm a soft yes on. on <laughs> well, I mean the coaches are divided on it. I've heard yeah. from all sides on this, and there and there's uh, the competing motives among the tiers, as you mentioned, like with uh, schools that are not Ohio State, Alabama, Florida State, and etc. That. Uh, have their own interests, particularly as it pertains to the signing calendar. Um, and, you know, then there's there's also the idea of, you know, the, the player that is going to, you know, wait for not only the head coaching change, but the assistant coaching changes, uh, which continue to be a, a very interesting topic for me. Partic- like, if, if you have gotten super tight with this wide receivers coach, you know, there might not be a head coaching change, but then the wide receivers coach, then we see it often right after National Signing Day, a big old changeover of a bunch of position coaches that uh, were hanging on just at least until that, that class was committed. With, when the early signing period was first introduced, I, I had a, a little bit of a, an ignorant response, but I think that it touched on the way that particularly at the, the top level of college football, things are shifting with the calendar anyway. I th- Barton, I thought, man, so many of these kids are enrolling early. It kind of felt like we already had an early signing period where like, it, you have to make up your mind in time to get to class in January if you're going to be on campus for spring ball. And we've seen more and more of these top recruits, uh, you know, skipping their prom, as you like, as you said, you know, like skipping the final semester of their high school year. So that that to me felt like a de facto early signing period though uh i had had not considered when it was first announced what you just mentioned the the player who perhaps uh wants to wait out to see how the the numbers fall for the big schools because then all of a sudden he could be signee 25 or 26 for a big school well and and here's i think the what's going to happen is so you got if 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 you're uh ohio state uh, and maybe not even Ohio State. Maybe we'll call it um, Indiana. <clears throat> if you're Indiana and you've got 20 commits in mid-December and the top 15 or so, or maybe even the top seven or so, you might be willing, if you're Indiana, to to let it ride and see if if you know those guys – you know, you're willing to wait until the final signing day and, and let them play the game a little bit because you like them that much and you, they're that important to your class. And that number may be big. Maybe it's just the top three they're willing to do that with. But the other 17 or the other 13 or whatever the number is, those guys are going to be sent an LOI with the expectation to sign that LOI. And if they don't sign that LOI, they're getting dropped. And so you are creating a, an environment, I think, that, that puts, um, puts a gun to the head for lack of a better term, uh, to, to some of these prospects and, and really ups the ante and ups the pressure in, in their decision-making process. And um, so, yeah, it helps the kid and it's, it saves a kid from from losing a scholarship in mid-January. But for your just average kid that would like to make sure he's making the right decision and make sure he knows all of his options, um, you know, he's going he's gonna to lose a little bit of that opportunity 
uh, with with the pressure to sign in mid December. It'll be wild. I mean, it's it's just going to take time, right? Like eventually, um, you know, will the game will sort itself out, and you know, people will find new ways to do it because college football coaches and college football players and the marketplace itself will uh, adjust and there will be a new reality, right? Like, it's not like this will be, do you expect this to be something that, uh, for could have consequences so disastrous that all of a sudden the NCAA just reverses course quickly? No, I don't think so. And I don't think the consequences will be as, uh, even the consequences that are negative. I think that they will be muted and it'll be hard to really pinpoint them and and, and it's, it's not going to be like there's a bunch of test cases of how this this didn't work out because you don't know what would have happened if they didn't sign or you, you know so um i think it's this is going to be a situation where even you know with me who's covered recruiting for 10 years now i, I really have no idea what it's going to look like this year who's going to be who's going to sign how many are going to sign who's not my hunch is that the the Top 100 five-star types are still, with with a few exceptions, are still going to wait until the final fe- February signing period because they can, because they have that leverage and they can, and they're just going to say, "Coach, want to make sure you're still going to be here." Um, and and but I don't know. Maybe they're all going to sign. Maybe coach, no- coach, coach, I still <laughs> want that Christmas morning text, bro. I still want to hear from you on New Year's when that ball <laughs> drops. I want you to be at my school in January sitting in history class with me, Jim Harbaugh. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Keep on loving me up, coach. I'm not, re- I'm not ready to be at the bottom of the roster just yet. <laughs> nah. <laughs> That's a great point. Uh, he is Barton Simmons. He's the best. Follow him at Barton Simmons. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Make sure that you subscribe to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast because subscribers get them first. Barton, thanks so much. Later. Later.